Dustin, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate it. Uh, you're representing Mr. Cannabis Law out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm excited to talk about some new things that you guys got going on and some new things in, in my opinion, in law in general and definitely new for the cannabis and psychedelic space. Um, so I'm excited to, to talk about that and we're just going to get right into it. Something that really drew me to you guys and I wanted to learn more about is you guys are investing into AI. I'm very interested in AI. We've used it a little bit in our companies, and uh, it's just amazing the potential that is there. I'm interested to see how are you guys using it uh, in the cannabis and psychedelic space? Uh, yeah, Mystery Cannabis Law is my law firm. I also have an investment fund called Eater Investments. Uh, we invest in various different types of companies. But yeah, the law firm, I think for the legal industry, AI is going to have a huge impact. Technology, this is nothing new to the legal industry. We saw this back in the day. We used to do research. Uh, lawyers used to do research going into books and reading treatises and you know going to the, to the library to, to do legal research. And then all of a sudden with the advent of the internet, all of a sudden they could research and look up things on the internet. And then the advent of companies like LexisNexis and Westlaw, where you pretty much have everything right at your fingertips. And a lot of lawyers didn't uh, switch over back when this was first invented. And those lawyers were very much left behind and and ultimately had no choice. Now, at this point, there's probably no attorneys that are really doing research in, in the books. Everyone's using like Westlaw or LexisNexis. So, you know, technology is nothing new and it's it's not even that unique to the legal industry. At the end of the day, before I launched my law firm, I was running a manufacturing company. We were doing about 50 million in revenue. Uh, we grew it very quickly and we always embraced technology. Um, so in, in any business, you got to be looking at what the latest technology is and you got to make sure you're investing into it. So we've been very big on that from the very beginning before even, you know, we have other technology initiatives outside of AI that, that we're very serious about. But when AI came along, I started, you know, was very early to kind of do the uh, ChatGPT plus upgrade for $20 a month. I'm still surprised when I hear people that aren't paying the $20 a month just to be on the cutting edge of this technology. But played around with some of the plugins on ChatGPT plus and you know, looked at a lot of the different companies that now that are launching around building software for AI software for uh, the legal industry and really found that there wasn't that many, that, that many software systems that really did the stuff that I needed it to do to streamline some of my activities. And, and ultimately what we're trying to do is, is reduce our time spent so that we could pass that along to clients and do things more efficiently and ultimately at a more price competitive number for our clients. Um, so we're doing various, we got various activities right now. We're really in the, in the due diligence phase. We're playing around with a bunch of different uh, opportunities. So, you know, one of the things our, our law firm does a lot of is application drafting. So if someone wants to get a license in a particular state, we basically, you know, do all the legal work. We draft the application. We all put together the team certain activities and they're very hard for AI to do. But there are other activities where I think we could save a tremendous amount of time. So right now we're working on a project where we're trying. I just finished uh, an application in Florida. They did uh, they had a round in April this year and very long. It was probably 11 weeks, pretty much working seven days a week nonstop. And so right now what we're trying to do is we're trying to generate that application through AI and if we can do that, we're going to roll it out for other states. We 
just finished like 15 applications in New Jersey. We've got like 12 we're doing in New York once they pass their regulation. So if we could save time and and kind of automate some of that stuff. So that's more like the the customer facing like outputs that we're working on, but also just streamlining client intake, billing, things of that nature. Anywhere where we're doing manual entry, we're trying to find ways that we can apply AI uh, to it and and streamline it. And you started mentioning some other states that you guys are involved in. So I, I assume how many how many states does your firm work in? How many states are you guys license in for cannabis? Yeah, we're in Florida, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Michigan, California, and should be adding Arizona very shortly. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. With that, you guys have a broad overview of a lot of different laws and regulations and the differences between the states and everything. While there are com- common or while there are differences between each state, there's a, a lot of common ground and commonalities that you can find. What are some of those common issues that new licensee people are running into that maybe could be fixed? And, and what do you guys think? How could we fix them? Really, to, to be successful in application, you really you need team, you need capital, you need real estate. Um, that's pretty much the, the items that you really need. And, you know, our law firm helps with, with all of those items it, and, you know, it, it's, it's kind of the same in every single state with respect to the application. With that being said, a lot of states are very different. Some of these states are now moving towards like lottery systems. So you just kind of need to do the bare minimum. And in those states, like really people are just looking for templates. Like it doesn't make sense for someone to hire an attorney for, you know, a hundred K to draft an application when ultimately they're just looking for the bare minimum and then you get put into a lottery. So DC is a lottery. Um, even Maryland in their upcoming round, they're, they're moving towards a lottery. Illinois, we originally did competitive applications in Illinois, but then in their last round, they switched over to lottery. So, you know, when you think about like it being a lottery, it starts to you know, price lawyers like us out, you know, it just doesn't make sense for us to get involved in, in those types of states. Um, but if we could provide templates through AI and automate some of that so that the clients, you know, doesn't take us, us much time and it doesn't cost the clients that much money, then there's certainly opportunities there. So I think what we're seeing is like the states, most of them were, were pretty highly competitive applications. And as a result, we charged quite a bit of money for, for application drafting. We're starting to see more states go towards, you know, simplified and and kind of lottery systems. Um, so we just want to make sure we adopt with the changes that are happening. Um, but either way, it's important you, you work with an attorney. I mean, it, regardless of the application process, you need to create your corporate entity. You need to make sure it's structured well from, you know, a liability and tax perspective. Most of the time you're raising capital. So, you know, you're going to need shareholder agreements or operating agreements. So either way, I mean, you know, whether it's, whether it's really with, with my law firm or another law firm, I, I always recommend if you're working in the cannabis industry, you're probably at some point going to need to hire an attorney. I agree. One of the other things that I do is I'm the COO of a new cannabis lounge that's coming into Las Vegas. We were able to do backtrack lottery system. So Nevada did the lottery system for their new um, app licenses that they were giving out. They were giving out a total of 40 cannabis consumption lounge licenses, 
20 were going to current dispensary uh, license holders, and then 20 were going to independents. You had to put, like you said, basically like an outline business plan and everything. Uh, you put it together upon initial review and approval. You were entered into the lottery system after paying your fee. And then if your number was drawn, then you went on through the rest of the approval process. So our number was drawn. I will say from experience though, man, I w- would have rather had a way more detailed plan up front because that's what we're having to go through now. Uh, the The law firm that we were working with, that was what they had recommended was like, you know, you can basically just kind of get by, you put your stuff together. But then now after the, after we won the license you, through the lottery, now they're like, okay, now let's do the super deep dive on you. So it's like, man, I wish I would have had this done beforehand. But you're right. The the fees and everything, I mean, we've already invested into the six figures uh, with attorney fees and compliance and stuff, just trying to make sure everything is is what they need it to be. And the hard part of this here in Nevada right now is they don't even have the full regulatory they don't even have the full all the regulations defined yet for these consumption lounges and they're they're doing it on the fly as we roll through as lounges are opening up or trying to open up their changing regulations or trying to adopt new regulations so yeah i mean i i always tell clients that you know these questions sometimes on the application that they're drafting really these are things you should be putting together if you're looking looking to launch a business you need to build a financial model. You need to have a business plan. You need to build an org chart. I mean, these are all pretty basic stuff that if you're not taking those simple steps and not willing to spend the money on taking those simple steps, probably not a client we really want to work with. You know, I, we, we want to work with serious players. But with that being said, our law firm, we specialize with the small to mid-sized guys. Like we're a small boutique law firm. We don't you know, we've done a lot of deals with some of the big MSOs and, you know, we've even represented a lot of big MSOs. Uh, we've co-counseled uh, with attorneys on, you know, M&A deals for MSOs, but our bread and butter is the small to mid-size. So with that being said, I, I understand that when you're a, a small company, you're just starting up, you generally don't have that much capital. So we're very cognizant of that and we structure our fees accordingly and, and we work with our clients and we advise them accordingly. Like, Quite frankly, like we could we could churn out a pretty basic business plan to get you entered into the lottery, you know, that's cost efficient. And then once you know you won, now let's spend the real money to really iron it out. So, you know, it, sometimes it just doesn't make sense to to spend that much money on the front end if you're not positive you're going to win that license. Then you have states like Florida where, you know, there it's there's no conditional licensing or anything. It's not like you go into a lottery. It's just straight competitive. So, you know, in this last round in Florida, it just the fee to apply that you pay to the state is 140 over 140k. So you know that's just for this. Then you need to you know you need to hire attorneys. You, it's a vertically integrated license. So you're going to need real estate in order to be competitive to have a competitive application in Florida. You have to spend at least 500k, but more realistically probably going to spend over a million. We, we spent well over a million just in our, on our application that we did in Florida. So every state is different. Um, it's good in those conditional states where, you know, you kind of apply, find out if you want, and then you could go out and get your real estate and everything. Um, but other states, it's like, you got to put out all the money on the front end and just pray that you're, you're going to be on the winning end. And then you have states like Arizona, where just to get the piece of paper to apply is like $10 million. It's insane out there. It's insane. We've uh, been talking to some people and 
trying to explore the opportunities out there, but it's very much a monopoly. Um, kind of switch gears for a second. So, you know, this, we've talked about cannabis and I've talked to several people here recently about cannabis here on the show, but one thing that we've, we've sprinkled in a little bit is the psychedelic stuff. I've had some authors and some scientists and subject matter experts on the, the plant itself. But one person that we haven't had on yet is someone that knows about the laws. And a lot's changed here recently within the last year in America concerning psychedelics. Now you have states, uh, you have like states like Colorado, D.C., California, Michigan, where it's decriminalized either statewide or in certain municipalities. You have states like Utah, Texas, Maryland, where it's legalized for working medical research. Washington decriminalized. And then you have states like Oregon, where it's completely legal and they have some type of regulatory statutes on the books as well. Can we dive into that a little bit? Can we, if you have the, if you have the knowledge on it, can we maybe go a little bit state by state and kind of tell us the differences and what this means? Absolutely. Yeah. So we, you know, we do a lot of work, um, on the psychedelic side. So my investment fund, um, we have a little under 30 million assets under management and it's all, we've invested in 18 companies. Most are psychedelic. It's not all psychedelic companies. We're really trying to find mental health solutions. We're, we're in a global mental health crisis right now. So we've invested in like VR meditation applications and stuff like that. But most of our investments are on the psychedelic side. And most of our investments are actually outside of that paradigm that you just described. Really, I see the opportunity in psychedelics more so as drugs that are approved as FDA pharmaceuticals. Um, so we've invested in a lot of different drug development programs, taking compounds through the FDA process for various indications. We've invested in, we've got psilocybin uh, clinical trials going on. We have MDMA clinical trials, ketamine, uh, various psychedelic analogs, 5-MeO DMT. Um, and even, you know, we've we've invested in like new chemical entities, uh, psychedelic new chemical entities. So a lot of people don't realize like MDMA and LSD, those are, you know, man-made compounds. They do also... I, I, you know, live in nature, but they're basically man-made compounds. And that really, all that research stopped in the seventies, once they were put on the Controlled Substances Act as schedule one. Um, and as a result, the research just stopped. So, mm-hmm. you know, those are incredible compounds, um, but there's literally an infinite amount of different types of compounds, psychedelic compounds that you can create um, that hit different serotonin receptors that are optimized uh, for the medical program, you know, it's not ideal, you know, LSD and, and psilocybin can take anywhere from six to 12 hours. If you're someone suffering from major depressive disorder, not exactly the best situation for you to have to be in an office for six to 12 hours getting administered psilocybin and LSD. So if we could, you know, we're, we're investing in some companies that are, are building psilocybin analogs that are shorter duration, um, and more consistent. Um, some that are even blocking the 5-HT2A receptor so that there's actually no hallucination, but you still have the neuroplasticity and the other physiological benefits. So from a legal perspective, you kind of have that pharmaceutical side where, you know, in my opinion, is is really where it, it's distinguished from cannabis. I think cannabis, when all the dust settles, it's a consumer packaged good. It's a CPG product. There will be, you know, there are some pharmaceutical companies, you know, there's there's Epidiolex, Sativex, Dravenol. There are uh, cannabinoid pharmaceutical 
drugs. But I think when the dust settles, cannabis, 90% of the market will be CPG. Maybe 10% is going to be pharmaceutical. I think on the psychedelic side, it's going to be the opposite. I think 90% pharmaceutical, maybe 10%, uh, not even CPG, because even in Oregon and Colorado, where they're rolling out legal frameworks, they're still requiring that it's done at what they call in Oregon a service center, or in Colorado, they call it a healing center. So rather than retail stores where you buy this this compound and you take it home, that's how you do it in cannabis. Um, in the psychedelic world, at least under Oregon and Colorado, which are the two legalized states thus far, um, you actually have to go into a center where it's actually administered. So it's a much different kind of structure. Uh, so I just see a psychedelic space. So you have FDA is, is, is one kind of legal structure. Then you have what some of the states are doing really with you know, the legalized framework. Then like you mentioned, you have decrim, which is really just, there's not business opportunities for decrim. Decrim is just basically possession and use are, yeah. are low priorities for, for the city or state. Doesn't really allow commercialization and decriminalized jurisdictions. But then you have um, end of life use. So I think this is a really an emerging space where there's federal statute, um, the right to try act that allows people who are, you know, kind of at the end of their life and suffering to access medicines that are not FDA approved. I think um, there's been a lot of really good clinical trials. We invested in a company that uh, licensed some research out of NYU uh, for psilocybin for end-of-life demoralization, and they got incredible results. So I think Is there a documentary on that one? There's been a lot of documentary. Let's say there's something very familiar that I remember seeing of an end-of-life life use, and it was here in the U.S. using psilocybin and other psychedelics for end of life use that's yeah well there's 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 currently a lawsuit um an attorney Catherine tucker is kind of leading the lawsuit to get these patients access to the right to try act it's it's a whole mess people really aren't able to access to the right to try act but it's being challenged in court and then you have the religious use which is also really expanding we've done a lot of churches uh you know for psychedelics um that's also very very gray area so like yeah for if you're planning to set up like a psychedelic church, it's really important you talk to an attorney that understands it and you are fully aware of the risks you're taking because it is certainly not black and white. So that's kind of how I split it up. You got FDA pharmaceutical, you got the legalized framework like Colorado and Oregon. I think more states are going to be adopting that. The decrim stuff, which is just uh, possession and use, doesn't really create any commercial market. You have right to try act for people at the end of their life. And then you have um, the religious uses. That's kind of how I spent. And each of them have their own legal paradigm. Happy to jump into them in detail if you'd like. But those are pretty much the different kind of legal uh, structures that we're, we're, we're going to be operating under. Now, with these centers, like in Colorado and Oregon, what does it take for a business, a person to get licensed in this yeah, so Oregon's already, as of January of this year, they already started accepting applications. Um, so much like cannabis, you apply to the the state department that's overseeing the program, and you get the license. What's been a challenge in Oregon is uh, they do have a provision in the state law that allows municipalities to opt out. We saw this in cannabis as well, that this is pretty common. Um and I think over 70% of the municipalities in Oregon opted out. So, so there were a few companies that got burnt on that, um, that didn't really plan the way they should have and bought real estate in municipalities that later went down, it went forward with opting out. And, you know, they were stuck with this real estate. So 
really important in Oregon. You know, you, number one, you got to be in a municipality uh, that hasn't opted out. Then you got to apply for a license. Uh, and then you got to, you know, once you get the license, you got to operate. Um, it's these tend to be, you know, the biggest thing right now that that's being balanced in this legal figuring out what the proper legal structure is. You know, we want to create a container that ensures that people are safe. Um, but on the other hand, we want people in marginalized communities to have access to these medicines. And so that's kind of the tension right now is the more safeguards you put up, the more there, you know, facilitators you require to be there, the more time you require them to spend after the session, that just increases the cost, which is better from a safety perspective, um, but is not so good from an access perspective. So, you know, they're talking about like, any and one administration could be up to like thirty five hundred dollars. In my oh. opinion, yeah, there, there, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, and, and some people. I, I really encourage people to understand both sides of that coin. There's a lot of people who are blindly advocating for one or the other. On the access side, people are really like, this is too expensive, and they just want like no safeguards. And I really, really don't think that's the right approach. We need safeguards. This is brand new. People don't have the education. They don't know dosage. They don't know set. They don't know setting. They don't know much. If the public was more educated, maybe five, 10 years from now, hopefully we'll be in a position where the public is more educated on these compounds and they know how to responsibly use them. But I think in these early days, I think that these people who are arguing that there should be like no requirements and just decriminalize and let people grow and share and community healing. That all sounds very nice, but as soon as you have one or two bad uh, occurrences, that's all it takes for the industry to take 20 steps backwards. So you have those people who are really advocating like access, then you have on the other side, people who, you know, want to put all sorts of red tape around it and, you know, have multiple therapy facilitators there, um, require a certain amount of stay at the facility, you know, all sorts of different requirements. So, I think there needs to be a balance and I encourage both sides to really understand the, the different interests that are involved. There's so many ways I'm sitting on a, I see this from a business perspective. I see it from a consumer. I, ways that you could go about this. I love how you kept referring to it as medicine though. I'm a firm believer that psychedelics should be used as medicine and not necessarily recreational. You know, I know that there's a time and place people, music festivals or certain things, they like to be on certain substances. And I get that. I understand that scene as well. There's also been, you know, some tragic deaths and stuff because of unregulated products in those same scenes and overdoses. I really love the medicinal part of it because of the personal healing. Uh, and then just also the countless testimonies that you hear of people that have accomplished so much, if you will, therapy in a four to eight hour psilocybin or LSD trip, or even a, a shorter 15 minute DMT trip than they have of years of therapy, of traditional therapy methods, you know? So I'm a I, big advocate of it, but I fully support what you're saying of it needs to be done and there needs to be some safeguards because all it does take is one person to be you know, tripping and then go driving down the interstate and cause a massive accident. And now we're just, you know, we kill people and now we're, we're just set back. It's not the same... I try to tell people this because we're in the spaces that I'm involved in with being in cannabis, the hemp Delta space, uh, the alternative space with like the new Aminidia craze coming out and uh, finding out how to use those properly and stuff. 
And I have my own opinion about Aminidia. I do actually look at Aminidia as a more recreational mushroom and not a medicinal mushroom. I don't recommend microdosing Aminidia muscara at all, like you would psilocybin. But cannabis users, you know, you can wake up, uh, you can use it medicinally in the morning to help with, you know, uh, acid reflux with IBS with GERD. Uh, you can use it throughout the day to help with nerve pain or just different stuff, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend going on a lifelong psilocybin vitamin, you know? Yeah. And that. I, I think, I think part of the problem, you know, our human brains are so simple that we try to make everything binary. So medical or recreational. And the reality is, is like, I see medical and recreational on a spectrum. I think in some capacities, even drinking alcohol after a hard day's work, you're, you're wound up if done responsibly in a way it's therapeutic. You know, sometimes I'm not a big drinker, but sometimes on a Friday night, I have, I have my, my one drink and I kind of feel nice and relaxed and it kind of allows me to unwind. Right. So is that recreational or is that medical? Neither. It's somewhere on that spectrum. And, you know, people's even going to a festival in, in many respects, like if you, I mean, have an MDMA experience, um, where your amygdala MDMA is incredible because it, it, you know, it releases oxytocin, which is like your heart heart opener, and it reduces your amygdala, which is responsible for fear and emotion. So you have this incredible sense of of oneness and, and community with people. And to be at a festival and experience that 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 level of love, to me, it, it opens up a window of our capacity to love one another and how we are all interconnected. It's not a hallucination. Like it just MDMA allows you to access the reality that we are all so interconnected. And it's really about what you do after that experience. You know, integration is an important part. So, you know, you could go to a festival and feel that love. And then the next day, just forget about it and be like, wow, that moment was great. Um, but now I don't feel that. Or you could take that experience and be like, wow, that really gave me a window into my capacity to love. And how can I carry that forward into my everyday life and integrate that into my my lifestyle and my, and my world on a regular basis without without the compound in my system? So you know, I, I think really integration could sometimes be the difference of whether it's being used recreationally or medically. If you don't do anything afterwards and it was just a moment in time that you were enjoying yourself, that could be recreational. But at the end of the day, going to a festival and and having your mind open and, and, and feeling that loving connectedness, certainly there's a level of, of, of it being therapeutic in that experience. 100%. I had a experience actually here recently within the last couple months uh with some friends some very good friends of mine and it brought us even closer we all did a uh a microdose uh psilocybin together very low very low dose and there was nothing hallucinogenic yeah some stuff was vibrant but we felt good but our minds were open and we were just on another another plane of consciousness together and since we were all on the same level the cool thing is we all have very different backgrounds. We're all very unique individuals, culturally, religious, family, just everything very different. But on that, on that time, that evening, we were all one, you know, we all found the common ground. We were all on the same plane and we explored new opportunities and, and, uh, thoughts and brought our beliefs together and found that common thread that holds us all. We're all human, you know? And it was, it was that it was such a great moment. Like you said, it's nothing hallucinogenic. It's just opening your mind up and opening yourself up to one another. And man, 
that's that's very powerful and that that's where i completely agree with what you said man it's it's somewhere on that plane of in between medical and recreational it's very hard to define and i just think it comes down to the time and place you know that's everything that we use in lifetime and place and the way that we're being used it and the the thought that we have behind it or the really the intention the intention thank you for the word the intention that you have in the aftercare is very important i love hearing about that we had some people on uh, they're called fireside it's a nonprofit that specifically is basically like a helpline or a call center for psychedelic uh, people using psychedelics or cannabis or really any type of substances but they're most people call in is about psychedelics and yes they have people that call in during a trip that need help basically like a trip buddy but they have a lot of people that call in for aftercare for the integration of the experience like holy crap i just had this mind-blowing experience and I, i'm having trouble processing it but i i want to process it. and so just talking through it and seeing seeing how you can apply that to your life going forward and, and actually make a change like we're seeing. yeah and in my opinion the integration is the most important part there was recently a study published about like this critical period of time they call it a critical period of time after a trip where your brain has more neuroplasticity and so you're, you're which really means like your brain is almost it's more malleable like you're you have an opportunity to kind of reset and change behaviors and become very self-aware and kind of restore your autonomy. So if you're addicted, for example, I, I had an addiction to, to nicotine vape. I see you vape in there. <laughs> I, I, dude, I was, I was bad and I've never had an addiction. I never tried a drug up until three years ago. So this is, I'm kind of new to this psychedelic journey. I always carried the stigma that I thought it turned your brain into mush. And then when I started reading the research about four to five years ago, I started representing some doctors, setting up some research collaborations and started investing in the space. And, and I actually started doing all that before I even tried any of these compounds it was just based on the research I was reading and then once I had my own experience I was like holy holy crap this is this is a, this is the total opposite of what I, society has been telling me and that's when I really got motivated to break down all these false social constructs that are built around us that these compounds are bad for your brain now, you, you need to have a good support system around you but these are not but these your brain if you look at like a brain scan while you're on these compounds your brain is being lit up it's the opposite. It's not, it's not being shut down. You have, you know, you're opening up new neural pathways and that time period afterwards, you're really able, you're super, super self-aware and you're re- really able to take, you know, control your nervous system. So I was addicted to the vape pen and I went to Beckley retreats, which is uh, in the beginning of June. So just recently I was like fully addicted. I'd never been addicted to anything. I was like, this nicotine vape pen is Every I woke up in the morning till till I fell asleep and I was like, This this is not good. I've never been so dependent on something. So I went out to Begley Retreats, we're their lead investor. It's a five day psilocybin retreat in Jamaica. And I went out there with the intent to stop smoking this nicotine vape. If if I didn't go out there with the intent, if I just went to a festival and took psilocybin, this isn't gonna stop your nicotine vape. And that's why your intention is so important. I went out there with the intention of 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 not smoking it anymore. And I'll tell you, I came out of the first ceremony. And I was like, shit, I still want the nicotine vape. Like it does not, it's not a magic pill where all of a sudden like I, you just don't want it. There are other psychedelic compounds like ibogaine that that I've heard, you know, do help like you know, with the cravings, but I still craved it. But what it did for me in the days after when I returned was I was, I, I felt like I was in control. Yes, I wanted to smoke the nicotine vape, but it was something separate. It didn't define who I was. It was something separate. And I was able to say like, I have the choice. I have a choice of picking this up. Whereas before I felt like I had no control. So it really just restored my autonomy 
And I was able to like, even though every day still waking up wanting it, I was able to have control. And now I'm, you know, about 60 days after I've not taken one puff of a nicotine vape pen. Before going there, I'm telling you, I go to the gym every morning. I would challenge myself just to not take a hit going to the gym. That's all. I, like, I just want to make it to the gym and I couldn't do it. I, I really, very few days was I able to get to the gym without taking a puff. And now here I am 60 days later and I'm smoking. So I think not only on the mental health stuff side, but on the behavioral health, I think there's tremendous opportunities, various addictions and other behavioral health indications. We've actually invested a lot into uh, psychedelics for various uh, substance use disorders and behavioral addictions. Um, I think there's tremendous potential because that time period afterwards, you're really able to take control of your behaviors and with the right support, you could change those behaviors and, and re rewire your brain and reprocess some of the trauma that maybe is causing some of that addiction. Yeah, I inspiring, bro. Bravo to you, first of all. I it's been on my mind a lot, honestly. So maybe this is just also some inspiration for me that I need to quit vaping. I had quit uh, smoking cigarettes back in I want to say 2014, 2013. And then I started vaping, but I quit vaping in 2015. And I just picked it up again back in uh, 2021. It was just recently. And I, I got back around a lot. It was because of where the space I was working in. I was going to a lot more trade shows again and stuff and just being around it. And was operations for, uh, still am, but was in charge of the vape and smoke uh, brick and mortar stores at that time now. You know, moved on, but taking in new products. And I was like, how the heck am I supposed to know if this is good or not if I don't try it? You know, it was a yeah. whole reasoning, whole reasoning. But Look, when you're addicted, you're always going to find the excuse. I, I would, you are, you will, you will. I was always pushing up. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll stop this time, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, it's, it's a, when I hear people tell me they quit like nicotine, like I, I never smoked cigarettes or anything, never really had addictions. Very, very like controlled individual. I go to the gym every day, eat very healthy like work a lot of hours and I love my work. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'd like to think I'm very much in control of most of myself, but I have, I lost, I lost control with nicotine. So when I hear people say they quit cigarettes or quit vaping, like it takes a lot of willpower and I give people tremendous amount of credit because I like to think that I have a lot of willpower, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it without help, without the Beckley team. And I, I continued to do after I went to the retreat, they, they provide integration afterwards. And I worked with their team to, you know, make sure I was, you know, meditating, breath work and, you know, journaling, things of that nature. And it really did help. But it's, you know, it, it's no joke. It's it's very, very hard to, to quit nicotine. Yeah. No, thank you for the inspiration. Yeah, I love, I can't remember the name of the, the molecule, if you will, but I had uh, some guests on a few, uh, almost a month ago, uh, from Clear Mind Medicine, uh, Dr. Adi Zuloff. And uh, Mark Hayden, uh, a company that's out of Canada and Israel. Clear Mind Medicine, I challenge you to, you know, just to look it up and see the amazing work they're doing. They have a, a molecule that they've created, a psychedelic molecule, if you will, but that has no psychedelic effects, no hallucinogenic effects or anything. And what they have found, the studies they've been doing is it's helped specifically with alcoholism. And it's a it just gives you the sensation that you're you've had enough and that's it so it went the studies that they've done is people have taken it either before or right when they start their alcohol use like right with their first drink they'll take the substance and after that one drink even severe alcoholics that say you know i have one drink and i can't stop till i'm blackout 
they have one, maybe two. And after that, they're just, they're just done. They're not drunk. They're not necessarily high or anything. They just, they feel done, satiated. They're good. And it's, that was a molecule that was, uh, discovered and kind of made like, you know, LSD. It, you can get the ergot and you can find it in nature, but to really do it like we, how we have nowadays, it has to be synthesized and made by man. There's so many benefits of stuff that are so medicinal, that are non-hallucinogenic, non-psychoactive, but can help with immense mental and psychological and even uh, just habitual actions that we all have. Yeah, yeah, I know the clear mind guys very well, and and alcohol use disorder, AED, is a very, very serious thing. People don't realize how big of an issue it is. We've invested, uh, there's a company called Awaken we invested in. Uh, They work out of Imperial College of London. Dr. David Nutz, one of like the foremost doctors around psychedelics for addiction. They are moving into phase three clinical trials using ketamine uh, for AUD. Um, so, you know, there's ketamine. We also invest in a company, Clairvoyant. They're uh, using psilocybin to address alcohol use disorder. Lots of different companies that are trying to tackle uh, this. But, you know, also just gambling addiction. You know, Awaken is working on gambling addiction, sex addiction. They're They're basically specialized on like the the addiction side of things. So they have various different compounds with various different addiction indications. I I think that's one area where there's tremendous potential. What's good about addiction um, from a clinical trial perspective uh, compared to like mental health, like, you know, treatment resistant depression, major depressive disorder is very hard to measure. There's not really objective uh, endpoints for depression. It's basically someone filling out you know, a questionnaire saying like, are you still depressed? You know, a bunch of questions trying to figure out, are they still depressed? Whereas with alcohol or gambling or sex addiction or whatever it might be, opioid addiction, you can measure it. <laughs> like how, how many drinks are you drinking per day? Are you still u- using opioids? So it's much more objective and makes it a little bit more easy to prove out in clinical trials. So we've been very interested on the, on the addiction side of things. I love that. And the irony, what the irony is that like people always ask me, they're like, wait a second, you're using psychedelics, drugs, schedule one substances to address addiction. What, what are, aren't they going to get addicted? And the reality is that there's been a lot of work done. Psychedelics for the most part are not highly addictive, not a high likelihood for abuse. Dr. David Nutt um, did a whole project on this. Um, it's, it's a graph that's shown in almost every single psychedelic deck, um, but it basically showed the safety profiles and, Compared to alcohol, nicotine, caffeine, how many people do you know addicted to psilocybin? Not many. No. Right. So no. not how they but there are other compounds, ketamine, if misused, you can get addicted. Still not as addictive as alcohol or nicotine or things of that nature, but some of them can be addictive. But for the most part, DMT, 5-MeO DMT, psilocybin, ibogaine, these are not compounds that people generally get addicted to. No, not at all. Not at all. If you got addicted to DMT, you must be out of the... You're an alien. Yeah, right. <laughs> you're an alien. That's all I got to say. Dustin, thank you, man. I really appreciate this. Uh, very informative and educational and learned a lot today. And just bringing awareness to this... I keep saying it, but the the renaissance that's happening. And I hope this one doesn't die off. I hope that we're able to successfully integrate this into our society uh, in a productive and safe manner and have the immense benefit that it really can for mankind. I'm not even kidding. For mankind, like we could really fix some problems in the world if some of these therapies and medicines were used as such. And, you know, we used to use it. 
go back hundreds of years ago, centuries ago, all of these medicines were used by the the shamans, by the medicine woman, by the holy people to get you to that other place, to get you to that heightened state, to help you through things in your life. I hope we can get back to that. And I love the people that are supporting it, like yourself that are investing in it and trying to bring awareness and and help us take on that new frontier. So thank you, Dustin, for, for what you're doing. And thank you for being here today. I appreciate it, bro. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. And thank you so much for covering these important topics. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure, man. You have a blessed day. Well. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.